The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The new Space Force will present its first pitch day in about six weeks. A new solicitation says Space Force will take pitches March 4th at Patrick Air Force Base in Florida. FedScoop reports the solicitation asks for pitches to include both mission delivery systems and back office and infrastructure systems. The White House has named David Patterson as nominee to become Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. He's Senior Vice President of Strategic Business Opportunities at SMA Incorporated now. He's a retired Air Force Colonel. He served as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller in the George W. Bush administration. Justice Department attorneys working on behalf of the Pentagon won a federal appeals court to stop Oracle's protest of the JEDI contract. A filing from the DOJ attorney says, among other points, the award of the contract to Microsoft proves the contract wasn't wired for Amazon Web Services. FedScoop reports the arguments the lawyers make are similar to their points earlier in Oracle's protest process. The debate's underway between the Office of Management and Budget and the Navy about what ships to count and how to count them to reach President Trump's goal of a 355-ship fleet. The Congressional Budget Office says maintaining the Navy's aviation fleet will cost $380 billion over the next 30 years. And U.S. Transportation Command reports poor results from a stress test of 61 ships. The solutions to all of these challenges may be connected. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He's former special assistant, the chief of naval operations, and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. Brian, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Francis. What do you think the connection is among those three big things that I pointed out, three really big rocks oh, the yeah. Navy has to move? I think what it shows you is that the, the Navy and the U.S. military is going to increasingly have to depend on its four forces to deter and deal with conflict when it happens uh, and they're not going to be able to rely on the kind of large-scale mobilization like we've done in the past for Desert Storm and Desert Shield and previous operations because unless they're willing to recapitalize the sealift fleet we're just not going to have the ability to move a large amount of men and material and women over to uh, overseas conflicts. Um, if, what that means then is that if that surface fleet that's out there day-to-day -day is the one you depend on you're going to have to think about how you recapitalize it in a way that makes it effective and sustainable. Right now the surface fleet the Navy has is too expensive to maintain uh, and is concentrated in a small number of really large expensive platforms and so that's causing the Navy and OMB to have this discussion about well what counts as a ship and do we want to start thinking about smaller less expensive ships counting as the kind of battle force ships we thought of in the past. You wrote recently a new report that's on the CSBA website today's surface force lacks the size resilience and offensive capability to effectively support the U.S. national defense strategy that sounds like what you've the crystallizes what the sentiment that you just laid out, right? Yes, yes. So right now the, the service fleet isn't large enough to be able to distribute itself in the multiple areas the Navy's got responsibilities. You see right now we've got a, an altercation or a confrontation happening with Iran. Uh, we've got the continuing competition with China and Russia. Uh, the Navy's got to be in all of those places at once and the surface fleet 
fleet's not big enough to cover them all. Uh, and even within those areas, the Navy's the surface fleet's not big enough to be able to uh, counter the kinds of missile threats that those countries are able to, to provide. There are two main concepts that you lay out here, two yeah. news that you yeah. propose in this work. New operational concepts and a new surface fleet design. Tell yeah. me about the operational concepts that you think are necessary first. So we need to shift to uh, surface fleet concepts that are much more distributed, which is something the Navy is moving toward, but they have not really invested in the kind of fleet that you would need to do distributed operations because it's still too small in terms of the number of ships. Mm -hmm. uh, and we think that the, each of those ships need to be better protected. They need to have better air defense systems or larger air defense capacities. So they're more survivable at smaller scales. Um, you don't have to send the entire carrier strike group in. You can send one ship in that's able to defend itself adequately to go counter something like a Chinese confrontation over an island in the Scarborough Shoal or somewhere mm -hmm. in the South China Sea. Um, and then we need to uh, look at new ways to do uh, some of the traditional strike missions that the Navy has done. So the carrier air wing that we've traditionally used to do strike operations uh, is increasingly becoming less relevant to those because the range of the aircraft isn't long enough. So the carrier has to sit so far offshore that the airplanes can't reach the shore. So they're going to have to depend on surface ships with uh, Tomahawk missiles to do a lot of that strike warfare. Uh, so you need a different surface fleet to be able to do that strike warfare. Um, you have five recommendations here, but before we get to those, there's a difference between the Navy asking and Congress giving and right. the kinds of things that you're describing strike me as the kinds of things that Congress says, yeah, those things are nice, but we really like these big booms. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, they're going to they're going to want an explanation from the Navy mm -hmm. as to what the surface fleet architecture needs to look like to deliver on those operational concepts. Uh, and the surface fleet, or the, rather, the Navy has not done a great job of explaining itself. So last year there was a big uh, uh, disagreement between the Navy and Congress about large unmanned surface vehicles. The Navy intended to use those to do the missile launches that would be needed to have the surface fleet replace the carrier strike group as the way we deliver strikes to overseas targets. Um, Congress didn't agree with that. Congress thought that the large unmanned surface vehicle uh, concept didn't make sense. It was a big expensive ship without any people on it. It was vulnerable. Uh, it didn't have as much utility in peacetime as the Congress was hoping they would get out of a ship that cost a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, and so the Navy's having to go back to the drawing board and come up with a better you know, discussion about what that ship is supposed to do and how they're going to uh, provide that capability. I want to hit on each of these recommendations, pursuing DDGX instead of the future large surface combatant pursuing an optionally unmanned DDC instead of the large unmanned surface vehicle, uh, uh, field more MUSVs, forego service life extensions for older cruises and destroyers, and invest in enablers. What are enablers when you're referring to them? So there? that's the uh, communication systems that are going to be able to allow these ships to talk to one another. Uh, space is going to be increasingly contested, so mm -hmm. we're not going to rely on the long-haul communication networks we've had in the past. So the Navy might have to turn to some non-traditional ways to maintain communications between distributed surface forces. So uh, high-altitude balloons, uh, unmanned air vehicles, they're going to act as relays, um, acoustic communications, um, and in some cases uh, they're going to have to operate without the benefit of communication is instead rely on their own ship's combat system to help that decision maker on the ship make decisions without the benefit of external input. One of the things that you keep track of, and I, I note your comments about them when I see you comment in the media, is the uh, amount of business that's going through the various shipyards, and that's right. something that members of Congress are always concerned about. Right. In what you're proposing here, yeah. small p politics, right. 
is there enough business going through those shipyards to keep the supply chain active right. and to keep the members of Congress who care about that stuff happy? Uh, it will be if the large shipyards uh, adapt to being able to build these smaller ships. Because mm -hmm. you know, if the Navy's going to shift to rebalance towards a larger number of smaller ships, that's a lot of business that can be spread around to the existing shipyards and maybe some new players as well. Uh, because we talk about growing the surface fleet more than two times, maybe almost three times, to be able to, uh, you know, to deliver on the distributed operating concepts we're talking about. Well, that's a lot of ships. And so, you know, those shipyards can get a lot of business out of that. They just need to adapt their business model to uh, be able to build smaller ships efficiently um, instead of the large ships they build now. Brian Clark, great to have you on as always. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Up next, an old Pentagon job gets a new lease on life. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the portfolio behind the job every branch now has to have. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Army, Navy, and Air Force each now have to have an Assistant Secretary for Installations, Energy, and Environment. The requirement in the new National Defense Authorization Act means the position isn't optional anymore. Catherine Hammock is former Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment. Uh, Madam Secretary, it's great to have you back. And with that credential, I assume you're biased in favor of this uh, requirement of the NDA. Why is this a good idea, do you think, Catherine? Well, it's a good idea because in the Title X, which defines Assistant secretaries for the Department of Defense, four are currently defined, one at the option of the secretary. And since the mid-1980s, that has been an installations and environment position. Now the codification of it means it is a required role versus an optional role. Tell me about your portfolio. We talked to each other a number of times when you were still in the building, but tell me what the range was because I was always struck by the wide range of things that were in your portfolio in that job. It's, it's a huge range. It's every installation that the Army tenants on. Uh, it's all environmental matters since the Army landed or became a service mm -hmm. and it's all energy that the Army uses. So it's a very, very broad portfolio. When I came into office, the Secretary of the Army also assigned me all contingency bases, so Iran, Iraq, and anywhere the Army has temporary bases became part of my portfolio. So it's a broad portfolio, and recognizing that it needs to be institutionalized and is a requirement, I think is a great thing. What will the person who does these jobs in each of these branches, how will that work be different moving forward because that job is there because it has to be, as opposed to the job being there because somebody wanted it to be? I don't think it's really going to be any different. I think it's going to be business as usual, but you take away the the hesitancy mm -hmm. of uh, the fact that it could go away at any point in time. Mm -hmm. And with the downsizing of the Department of Defense that's going on and the night courts that are being held, it was always one of those that was subject to discussion mm. is could it be converted to something else? Just because it didn't have to be there. Correct. And now it has to be there and it's something that can't go away. That infrastructure strikes me as maybe the more difficult thing than the actual job 
there are folks that are qualified like you to take the job, but building that infrastructure back, if it goes away and comes back, strikes me as maybe the difficult I piece. agree, I agree. And the question is then, whose portfolio does that work go into? Mm. If it goes into acquisition and logistics, well, that's already a huge portfolio. Manpower and reserve affairs is also a huge one. Financial management and comptroller's big, and civil works. Those are the four required assistant secretaries right now. It doesn't fit well in any of those portfolios. How has the nature of that portfolio changed from the time that you first took it to then the time that you left the Army and then to now, given what we're seeing with changes in climate, that's an impact that you and I talked about a lot when you were in that job, in the capabilities that the Army is looking for, the big six now that the Army's focused on today, all of that. How has the nature of this portfolio changed in your view? When I came in, it was titled Installations and Environment. Mm -hmm. And I was asked to put a big focus on energy, operational energy and installation energy. And so I changed the title of the office. Since it's not in Title 10, I could change the <laughs> you title. You could do whatever you I wanted. I could do whatever I wanted. So I changed it to Installations, Energy and Environment and put a bigger focus on energy, being more efficient with the energy we use, being more efficient with the fuel used in the battlefield means the the, the operational commander has more options. And so we really talked about um, being efficient with the energy you have, not conserving it for the sake of conserving it, but in understanding where and how you use it. The role has not changed that much because a lot of the climate issues are hooked to energy issues. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing a lot of focus on resiliency, mm -hmm. energy resiliency and installation resiliency associated with climate change. I'm, I mean, no aspersion to the four people who either occupied the other assistant secretary jobs when you were there or the people who occupy those jobs now, but I wonder if there will be a difference in the way that those assistant secretaries interact with installations, energy, and environment now that they also know that job's not going away, that they can't say, well, this, this, our job is solid, this one might not be, so maybe. Do you see what I'm getting at? Well, what concerns me most is there's not a requirement for an Assistant Secretary for Installations, Energy, and Environment at OSD. Mm. And that job went away, and it went away in 2018. So now you, that reports up into sustainment, which is already a big portfolio. So you have Deputy Assistant Secretaries for Installations, Energy, and Environment. Mm -hmm. You don't have an Assistant Secretary coordinating all those efforts. And the last one was uh, John Conger, who is an Acting Assistant Secretary. And again, in 2015, I think it was, he changed that name of the office to uh, Energy, Installations, and Environment. Mm -hmm. So you see a decreasing focus on the subject from an OSD level, and now you see an increasing focus from the services. So it, it, it's a bit of a dichotomy there. I wouldn't be surprised to see something in the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act along just the lines that you suggested. Catherine Hammack, thanks very much. It's great to see you. Thank you, Francis. Up next, testing 5G capabilities at military bases. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the state of the tests and the technology and how 5G will help the force. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Defense Department will test military uses of 5G technology at Marine Corps Logistics Base Albany and Hill Air Force Base as early as this year. It wants to examine both current uses and possible new applications of the high-speed capabilities 5G provides. Sal Dietry is chairman of the National Spectrum Consortium. Sal, thanks for coming on the program. What do you think the Pentagon should be looking for when they're testing 5G capabilities? Well, Francis, it, it, first of all, there's a lot of talk uh, in the media today about sort of the plumbing of 5G. What we're really seeking to do is to find that killer app. What application is going to enable the warfighter, both from global logistics to things like augmented reality to better capabilities? That's what's really going to prove out 5G. And quite frankly, I think on the commercial side, the commercial industry is looking for the same. What is the app that's really going to drive the 5G network? Now, you mentioned a couple of things there that the military is already pursuing, and we've seen examples of them all over the map. Is it possible that it, maybe we're thinking about killer apps, plural, because all of those things have legitimate uses and, and have, are potentially really huge gains for the military? That's right. I think 5G uh, brings to that, in many cases, the speed capability of a mobile network that we've never seen before. So let's take augmented reality, for example, live training that's been done in simulation to be able to have the capacity to now do that in a mobile environment where the warfighter, he or she, are moving in an augmented world at the speed that they need to, to test and train, is an incredible capability. Also, think about what that can do for the commercial industry and the gaming industry uh, in, in entertainment. And as we think about the future of augmentation, there's a lot of synergies there. And that's why the National Spectrum Consortium has become involved. We're a group of uh, traditional contractors, the non-traditional, as you know, through the other transaction agreement. We're bringing the best of Silicon Valley, traditional contractors, carriers together to figure out what, it, how can we innovate in 5G and bring that out to the battle space. The, the speed is one thing. The mobility is also interesting. What I'm struck by is the range of possibilities of potential applications for 5G technology. We were out in San Diego last year and went to, it was called Spay War then, and saw some of the training things that they're doing and that they were looking forward to 5G technology augmenting. And some of them are really fancy and, and cutting edge tip of the spear. Some of them are things like maintenance and, and, and operation stuff, training somebody how to fix something very mundane. Are people maybe thinking in maybe too limited of a way about what 5G can do for them? Should, is it time to maybe kind of try to open the aperture a little bit? And I think that's this effort that um, osdr &E has initiated in bringing together folks from Silicon Valley, from others who say, what, first of all, what are the technical possibilities? Uh, let's throw open a wide collaboration before we charge too far. And I think these first RFPs that are out really do look at a number of areas. Smart logistics has smart base IoT in it. That's a natural for 5G. The augmented reality and training is a natural for 5G. And one that I really want to hit on is the shared spectrum aspect of this. Shared spectrum is a technology that was innovated in the United States. In a time when folks are talking about our competitiveness, shared spectrum was a technology that was first pioneered by DARPA and then uh, collaboration with DODCIO was brought to the market by the FCC in 2019. This is a U.S. innovation that we need to continue to push on. What do we have to do? What does the defense industrial base, what does the federal government, any of the other stakeholders need to do 
to really exploit that advantage to its maximum potential? Well, I think we're off to a good start. There's been a strong collaboration with CIO. This, this next round of testing at Hill is going to expand the capability into the mid-band spectrum, critical spectrum for the U.S., and do that in the airborne environment, which has never been done before. So if we can solve some of these harder problems, I think we're going to have a template to move into other bands for shared spectrum and also an opportunity for DOD itself to come back and start using that shared spectrum for new opportunities. And I think that's a big game changer. If you look at the value there in shared spectrum, you now have over 30 OEMs, commercial OEMs, who have devices that now operate in military spectrum. That offers tremendous opportunities of flexibility, scale, uh, for DOD as we move forward. I want to shift gears for a moment. You mentioned, you talked about the makeup of the membership of the consortium. Some of the companies that have, are not traditional defense industrial based members, what have they told you about the experience that they've had in directly communicating with the government? I imagine those experiences are not always great if they find value in joining a consortium where they can kind of all band together with one voice. Well, I can tell you from my own experience, the company I represent, Federated Wireless, is a non-traditional. We're an innovator in this shared spectrum environment. The OTA has allowed us to engage with the federal government in a collaborative fashion that startups enjoy, that is traditional sort of Silicon Valley-like behavior that we're familiar with. In, in a way that allows us to quickly get to market uh, with sensibilities that are very commercial. And I think that's one of the strongest things I've found uh, in the OTA itself, is that collaboration that goes on with the customer and then the sort of rapid opportunity to prototype. And quite frankly, I think prototyping is a key here because prototyping makes better policy. Mm -hmm. And the sooner we can get things out in the hands of the warfighter, he or she, we're going to be able to move those policies like spectrum sharing and 5G a lot faster. We have about a minute left, Sal, but the key, I think, to what you said there is that th there's a direct analogy here that companies like yours see working with the department that they see when they're working, trying to sell to commercial customers. That's right. It's The OTA is the most commercial opportunity for companies uh, of startups through the traditionals to get involved and get involved quickly. We have about 30 seconds. What will you watch with these tests that the military branches are doing with 5G? Well, I'm looking again for the killer app. Mm -hmm. What's going to shake out of this that's really going to be a game changer for the warfighter? 5G's rolling out in the United States. I think that piece of it is, is well underway. But it's really that application. Can we achieve a 5X, 10X improvement in some area? Thanks very much for coming. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Francis. You can stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or simply tell your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of nonpartisan government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. I'm Sharice Hanner. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. 
Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory, and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.